You're listening to Self Worst. This is a podcast about failure, inspiration, day jobs, bad habits, and mental health. We talk about art, spiritualism, imposter syndrome, perfectionism, mediocrity, and meritocracy. We do sometimes talk about sexual assault, suicidal ideation, trauma, and whatnot, so I don't know. Be advised. Each week, artists, designers, losers, dirtbags, musicians, degenerates, comedians, actors, fuck-ups, scholars, crazies, filmmakers, veterans, sluts, commies, weirdos, activists, addicts, teachers, fatties, queers, and all other types of beautiful people. Join me, Brad Pearson, not a doctor, not a therapist, not an expert, in a discussion of what to do with this stupid, sacred life. Are you blessed or are you cursed With a strong imagination and a spiritual thirst Do you want to confide about the darkness inside Come and talk about it on self Worst. <sighs> Hello everybody Hi Hello Nice gentle, nice gentle good morning for you Hi Hi, sunshine. How you doing? Open them pretty eyes. Hi. Hello. It's me, Brad Pearson. Uh, you know me. I'm the guy. Unless you don't. Unless this is your first episode. That's exciting. Thanks for jumping in. We're almost 100 of these bad boys in. I'm glad you could join us. I hope you listen to the backlog. Thank you. Uh, we're doing good. Not up as early as I normally am to record this uh, intro, outro thing that I usually do. I, uh, I woke up at like 4 a.m. and couldn't get back to sleep until uh, until like 8. So it's, it's, it's like 8.30 now. So we're doing okay. I'm a little groggy. Sleep schedule got a little weird. Still got this weird uh, itch in my throat. I think... I, I, I did another COVID test just to be sure it's not the COVID. You know, reading about those breakthrough cases, a little unnerving, a little unsettling, but we're just going to keep partying through it, I guess. I guess we're just going to kind of ignore, like, hey, you can still get it, and we're all just like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and we're just kind of keeping the world open. I don't know what the fuck is happening. Anyway, it's not that. Might have been the ominous apocalyptic smoke that was here this week uh hazy smoke from a fire on the west coast smoking up the east coast it's fine that's good there's nowhere to escape climate change if it ain't covid it's gonna be some sort of fume in the air that asphyxiates us that's fun that's fun to think about. But hey, don't worry. Jeff Bezos launched a rocket into space. Or not even space. It was like suborbital, technically. So that's good. It, he, he, he took a little carnival ride up to suborbital space out of the atmosphere for 11 minutes. Uh, for some reason. So it's fine. West Coast is on fire. China's flooded. But some guy, some billionaire can uh, go up to space 
uh, thinking that he's Zephyrin Cochran inventing space travel or some shit. That's a Star Trek reference. Did you get that? Anyway. And it looked like a big dong. We all see this? The big old, uh, big old space penis? I mean, come on. A big old penis that only lasts 11 minutes and doesn't even get you all the way up there? What is it, me? <laughs> Folks. This week we have Gabe Pacheco on the show. He's a comedian. He's a teacher. And he's an all-around cool guy. He's got a great podcast that he just started uh, called Halal Cartels. Uh, they talk about, you know, uh, global South culture versus, uh, you know, being products of the global South, uh, India and Mexico, respectively, him and his co-host, and uh, living in the United States, in the heart of the empire. We talk a little bit about the show, so I'll let him explain it, but it's a fun show. They're both very smart. Um, and, uh, yeah, this was a good talk. I don't, I don't got much else to say about it. I think it speaks for itself. I don't know. Why don't you just listen to it? Why do I gotta explain? Anyway. Right up top, I wanna do some housekeeping. Patreon.com slash selfworst. Thank you for helping me out. Got some bonus episodes. And other bonus materials. That's fun. You can help me out. Little as a dollar a month. I was thinking about maybe starting a Kofi account. You heard of this one? Kofi, K-O-F-I. You can do like a one-time donation. It doesn't have to be recurring. Or I can maybe just drop my Venmo. You can also do that. If you'd like to do that, I don't know, DM me or uh, send me an email. Selfworst at gmail.com. Uh, let me know. Send me a message. Send me a message about anything. Hit me up. Just be like, hey, Brad, listen to the show. Liked it. That would, that would make my fucking day. I love that shit. Do it. Just send me a thumbs up emoji. Or any emoji, really. Send me the, I don't know, the chains. Or, like, the uh, ambulance. Send me uh, a, a dolphin. I don't know. Whatever. Do whatever. Make my day. You can reach me at selfworts at gmail.com. Uh, you can also uh, follow me at Bradical Pearson on both Instagram and Twitter. You can follow the show at selfworst on Instagram. You can do that. That's fun. You can rate and review the show on iTunes. Leave a nice little review. That's another nice thing to do. Gabe and I, we talk about, you know, being of service. That's a thing you can do to be of service. Just do a nice thing for somebody. Go out, compliment somebody's shirt. Be like, hey, brother, I like your shirt. Be like, uh, hey, nice hair. Hey, your deltoids are rocking. It provided it's an appropriate time and place to, you know, make a compliment like that. Don't make people uncomfortable. Don't be weird. You know, you got to read the room. Say a nice thing to somebody. Make their day. Yeah, has, ever, has anybody ever just like given you a random compliment and you just like walk around glowing the rest of the day? Don't you want to do that for somebody? Isn't that nice? 
do it. Anyway, that's your homework. Let's go to the episode now with Gabe Pacheco. Welcome, Gabe Pacheco, to the show. How you doing, bud? We uh we have we've talked a, a little bit in person, uh, but you know we haven't really haven't really interacted much uh, as of yet. Yeah, my relationship with you is primarily a parasocial relationship. That's true. Point. Yeah, we we talk about parasocial relationships on this on this show a lot. I was just talking with uh, Jake last week on the show about parasocial relationships, and you did a whole episode with him on his show about uh, about that basic topic and it was through the lens of uh what was that movie pump up the volume which is a great oh movie. yeah, yeah that, that's was a, that was a great episode and a great movie thank you i've been thinking about it uh quite a bit honestly that um in some ways if our relationships are defined by who is around us geographically like mm-hmm. just time and space then you know you're uh, we're almost like fooled by the animal nature of uh our the other person's smiles, their physicality, their, um, just their proximity. Proximity breeds familiarity. And we're like, oh, this is my friend. You know, yeah. it's like your work, your work friends or like your, your neighbors yeah. or the people that were in your dorm. And yeah, there is something authentic about those connections. But there's something um, now, especially during the pandemic, where I've become so much more enamored with uh, hearing people's deepest thoughts Mm-hmm. on podcasts which i think of as like modern day zines kind of yeah i guess i guess you could look at it that way it's very diy it's very any any old jerk off can do it it's very uh niche and sometimes self-indulgent and kind of lo-fi and you know it, it, yeah i see what you're saying it shares a lot of qualities you can go it's down like, like a very like spectrumy rabbit hole with with your zine back in the day and just have it very you know just like this is my 20 page zine about you know some very specific historical figure about like some little health ailment that i have or like you know whatever yeah it's like if you're uh, cerebral I, I i guess you know th- this is a that idea of a parasocial relationship, it's like, no, I'm really, I feel like I'm falling in love with uh, the way someone's brain scaffolds information when I listen to them talking on a podcast. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like my favorite podcasts, uh, it's not even really so much the content of what they're talking about. It's really just more the person. It's the people yeah. and their dynamic, their friendship. Um that that really gets me. I mean, some of my favorites are just it's just two dudes, two bros just sitting down chatting, like uh walking the room. Um oh yeah, dude, a little time. There's a lot of those. Um I mean baby geniuses too, I think like you know, they they do have interesting stuff to talk about, but I'm more just like there for their friendship. It's just about their friendship. Yeah, yeah. Well that <laughs> that in a way is the is the most parasocial uh, aspect of it. The yeah, sort of, I mean, there's that. I'm a fly on the wall. I get to be the quiet friend in the romper exactly, room. Exactly. Yeah. Downstairs den. Well, you get you get to see like also just kind of like it's a highlight reel of a friendship because it's rarely like the bad or the awkward parts of the friendship. They're usually getting along. They're usually yeah. like, really riffing and, and like they're having a good time because it's only like one hour and they can allude to fights that they've had earlier, but they don't really. I've I've le- I've had it. I've seen it or heard it a couple of times where there's like actually like an on air like fight or squabble that happens, like where it kind of breaks down and things get weird. 
and it's very uneasy and you you feel um you know like it's like watching your parents fight or something you know where you're just like i don't i don't like this i'm uncomfortable guys stop 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 you know like it just feels really sure. bad they had that's like, not love language yeah you were, your, your wires weren't crossed to think that that's it's awesome bad. they had a they had, um <laughs> there's a famous episode of oh yeah dude from a long time ago like when they were uh, must have been like 2008 or 9 they had a big fight like and and just released the episode um and it's it's hard to listen to because I, I just like them and like their friendship so much that I'm just like, I don't, I don't like, I don't like hearing them like this. This just makes me upset <laughs> and I don't know them. I've met them once at like a show and that was it. They don't fucking know me, <laughs> you know, like they're not my friends. Yeah. Well, uh, w- one reason that I, I like the format of podcasting too is like I've been doing stand up in New York for about 15 years, wow. probably all, all in all with a couple pauses here and there, but um, within that, uh, there are, unless you're doing one man shows or you're doing hours and you're doing them in a the theater, it's really the, the constraints of the format are one where you don't actually get to know people. Mm-hmm. And there was, I think in the early two thousands, this sense, this, uh, sense of new authenticity, like, oh, these guys are just saying what's really on their minds. Right. But, uh, I'd say a lot of holes were poked in that with like, you know, Louis CK. Yeah. Right. I would say him as I would see him as sort of a spearhead of this sort of like just being up there, warts and all, just being myself. And you see that it's not actually true. It's just um, authenticity is another uh, veneer, another yeah. um, uh, conceit, and uh, with or aesthetic choice. And then with podcasting, if someone is actually, you know, has to put their thoughts out there all the time in an hour of conversation you do get to know people better and as an artist i think it's a better platform to get your aesthetic out there right you've had a couple of podcasts yeah over the you just <laughs> launched another one you're only like five episodes in uh yeah. tell us a little bit about that one but i also kind of want to hear like I, I haven't even heard your older ones well so this one halal cartels uh that is the name mm-hmm. of this podcast and it is Basically, I've been running Funhouse Comedy with um, one of my writing partners, Samir Nassim. And we have been doing Funhouse for six years at different live venues in Williamsburg and Bushwick. And uh, the, I guess, you know, what I was thinking was our, our, his life seems so much more interesting to me than necessarily the, what I get to hear about Samir in the five to 10 minutes that we banter up front right or the 10 minute sets that i see him do and in the same way i feel like i'm not really entirely myself uh within that format and the conversations that we would have on long road trips to go do gigs were we didn't shut up we just talked you know we we had playlists and we thought oh you're gonna listen to this podcast with me but we just would talk for 10 hours straight in the car and so that felt like um, all right, well, why don't we try to put that on wax, you know, to right. use an anachronistic term? Why don't we try to like uh, create, recreate this conversation about the things that we're actually interested in, in a podcast? And Halal Cartels for me is we're both products of the global south. Uh, you know, my family's from Mexico uh, and his family, he's Indian and Muslim. Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, but we live in the center of empire. Like we live in the heart of culture. Uh, right. or where cultures manufactured uh, 
Brooklyn, New York. Um, but I think our perspective is just a little different because uh, we're trying to come at that. We're trying to reframe the narrative where we're centering ourselves in that, hmm. you know, and uh, and so at first we were throwing around like jokey names like Tandoori Tacos, some nonsense where it would just be like a culture clash podcast. Right. But I think Halal Cartels just gives it a little bit more, a little bit more bite because we wanted to be more political than just sort of superficially acknowledging uh, stereotypes. Right. Right. I mean, you don't want it to just be about like, hey, we're just two brown guys and that's our whole shtick, yeah. right? It's about, I mean, you're both fairly knowledgeable with uh, history and global politics and uh, stuff like that. I don't, I don't know how you uh, guys got to be so smart with all that stuff. Is that is that your background? Did you did you study history? Uh, yeah, well, I'm a I'm a teacher and oh, I, studied, I was a history major in college. Mm hmm. And uh, then I got a master's degree in education. So I've been, and then I'd say that uh, I've gone through political, uh, political awakening or consciousness is not linear. Like, like nothing's linear. I, I yeah. feel like it was a roller coaster for me and some two steps forward and then some steps into nihilism and then some steps into being a lib and then yeah. back to being more radical. But um, yeah, I think, my late the latest latest iteration of where I'm at uh, the genesis of that was um, being a co-host on the Katie Halper show on WBAI radio. Mm -hmm. So I, I joined her for that in like 2015. And at that moment, uh, I was pretty nihilistic and uh, kind of just I didn't really see any. I didn't have any grassroots. Um, like journalism or people feeding me or nurturing any sort of like leftist thought. And every week she would have a different guest on. And, you know, I had these just transformative moments um, being around uh, amazing people like uh, Ted Alexandro brought someone on the show and I can't remember his name now, but I want to acknowledge him at some point. Uh, he, this guy who uh, talked about the um, slave, uh, cemeteries in uh, southern Manhattan. Yeah. So, like, just uh, kind of acknowledging like the history of slavery in New York City, which I'd always just thought about slavery in the context of uh, the South. Right. So, and then I got to meet um, Eric Garner's mom. So, wow. to meet uh, his mom, you know, a year after his murder that was uh, profound as well, because it's one thing to hear or even see uh, a murder take place on TV, but then to uh, meet the family and see the, and hear the oral history and have the ripples of, yeah. you know, senseless act of violence like that through a, an entire community firsthand, that's going to change. That's going to just uh, amplify empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we would have, along with that, we would just have other uh, journalists um, talking about foreign policy in ways that really shaped my thoughts and made me much more of a pacifist or anti-interventionist. Where where did you get started in sort of thinking about history and sociology and politics and all of that stuff? <laughs> I like, uh, okay, well, so I, I was raised in Washington, D.C. 
Oh, well, there so. you go. So that's like the heart of <laughs> politics. But, but not everybody from D.C. gives a shit about that stuff. So I don't know. Like there's something. I mean, it's a big ass city. It, it's also an ahistorical um, politics is ahistorical mm. in that uh, every four years you get a new president and every right. four years you get a new mandate and um, you get new policy. And the people that always rise to the top of any institution are the ones that most rapidly and optimistically embrace the new policy. Yeah. So if Bill Gates has money and he says, I really like small schools, we should all do charter schools. He's the top of the pyramid and he has the capital. So every other uh, institution is Im immediately going to start using the, sa the same language around like, you know, small schools are better, yeah. right? Like charter schools sound great. We should all have academies. And that's an example in, um, with philanthropy, but with politics, you know, the other example, the example would just be whoever the president is, the party line is what we're all, we're, we're all just going to lockstep, yeah. smile, you know, be Jen Sackies. Well, I mean, that's the, I mean, what's been going on lately with the idea of critical race theory and the 1619 project versus what, what are they calling it? The, the, the 1776 project or whatever the fuck that's like, this is like very like rah, rah pro America. Like, you know, that's right. you know it, they just want to continue the myths of, you know, uh, the, the natives helped us grow some corn and we all sat down for a nice meal. And that's the story of Thanksgiving and everything's chill. Like, and we've just been the good guys throughout history and all that shit that is the history of this country that, people want to believe i guess and I, I i i've been over this before like i guess i see why people want to believe that they're in the good place you know <laughs> I, I mean because it just makes you like there's those people who just like patriotism becomes like their personality like just like the guys with like the flags like they have like a flagpole on their truck, right? Not even a bumper sticker. It's like an actual flying flag in the bed of their truck. And just like, okay, so you don't haul shit. You don't actually use that pickup truck for fucking anything. You just have a flag in the back. Anyway. Um, well, it's, it's yeah. like the, the page, like the patriotism thing is always been kind of weird to me just because I guess I was always raised you know, to have kind of a critical eye of that stuff or just always have sort of critical thinking, which I'm really grateful for. And I don't think a lot of Americans really have that kind of shit. And like not enough Americans are raised with critical thinking skills. But also, I don't know. It just like as like I was never raised like religious or anything like that. So it just I, I never felt on board with like we're on this side and this team and this group of people and those are those people over there and they're bad. Boo. And like we're the good guys. Like I get that you want to be a part of that. And I get that you want to have this like line, uh, this lineage and history of heroes and, you know, uh, all of our great presidents were all these noble men and all these noble causes. Uh, but also who gives a shit? Like if you live in a bad country that doesn't reflect on you as a person, that doesn't matter. Like you're not, it doesn't like, say you live in a country that was founded on genocide and racism and slavery and all these horrible things happened here and white supremacy. 
that does not make you a white supremacist and a racist and a bad person. It's just like it, you, you're you're separate. Like you are not That's your country. Right. You are not your it, country. Uh, Relax. <laughs> right. These are just like the cultural systems and the institutional systems, like and the financial systems that uh, are operating. But we are not. Uh, we are only uh, active agents in these systems yeah. when we unconsciously follow all the rules. So when you walk, when you sleepwalk through life, the default is to be an agent of these things. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and, and I'm, I, you know, I just advocate for people to, um, wake up, man. <laughs> well, I mean, when people vilify other countries and other cultures, they do two things at the same time that are contradictory. They either make everybody out to be these like brainwashed automatons, like these, like, you know, just people marching in lockstep and they're just all these like, you know, or they're all like radical fanatical people or, it's we got to go liberate those poor people over there who are so oppressed by their evil government and they want out of it and they don't like it and they're not a part of it. And aren't we doing a good thing by going and fighting and invading this fucking country? Like they can't both be true. That's right. That's right. So I guess to bring up um, a couple origin stories for myself. Yeah, I love one origin is stories. That, uh, one is that I so grow, I was raised in Washington and I grew up in the city proper. So growing up in Washington, D.C. in the 80s, it was at the height of uh, like the crack era. So yeah. D.C. was incredibly um, there was it was the murder capital. There was a lot of chaos uh, in the streets. Uh, just genuinely, there were scary pockets of the city. But also I had a beautiful childhood within that context. Like I my, my family was more well off. So uh, I, I felt like I could. I saw what was happening in the streets and I was around, but uh, then I would go to like the suburbs where other, my, my parents were a, like a lawyer and a, a government uh, employee. Yeah. So like very solidly middle-class. Yeah. But then, so I'd, we'd go to the suburbs and I'd, we'd hang out and I'd rub elbows with other kids and I, and I'd hear other parents talking about the city as though, once you once you cross this the the line from Virginia or Maryland into the city, somehow you were now in like a deep dark jungle, like to use sort of coded language. Right. Yeah. So here, you know, uh, to just sort of be on the deep dark dangerous side of the city uh, line, and yeah. seeing that there actually was no real difference. Yeah. You know, or that people are all the same. Yeah. But then to see how people's um, sort of prejudice, the way people see it. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, I went to two high schools. Yeah. Um, one of them was predominantly white. I mean, I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, so most of the schools are kind of predominantly white. It's a pretty white yeah. town. But I transferred schools partway through to go to a uh, like arts focus program. But my homeschool was like the the main school is going to be like the downtown school um which is not predominantly black but has like the bigger you know the the largest black population in it, of any of the public schools in Lincoln um or just like the most diverse population and 
it was the first time that I really heard people who like I thought were my friends, who I thought were like really cool people, just like kind of pulling me aside and being like, I heard you're going to Lincoln High next year. And like, you look just I mean, like, you know, be careful. And like, if they don't, you know, if you don't, if you don't bother them, they won't bother you kind of like, like, I'd hear people and I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not sure what you're like, I just, I'd be a little scared to go there kind of stuff. And I was just like, you're not saying it, but you're saying it, you know, they, like that's, like, I was like, I, I know what you mean, you know? Yeah. They're uh, dog whistling. Yeah. Before we had the words for that, I was just like, this is something about what you're saying is not, does not feel good to me. Cause yeah. So like, it wasn't like the school that I was going to before was, I mean, it was predominantly white, but like half of it was like very poor white populations like there were like trailer kids and there was meth and there was crime and there was teen pregnancy and shit so it's like it wasn't any it wasn't like it was that much prettier but they were just like oh the crime's over there i was like okay but like a meth lab exploded across the street from this school so i don't know what you're talking about right (laughs) what yeah if the meth lab explodes across the street from the white school it's like hey we've got we've got a problem and we need to get some therapy for these kids like I don't know. I don't know what the response was. Like everybody was like, I don't. Nobody really acknowledged it. Like I kept like talking about it. Just like, can you believe that there was a fucking meth lab in a house across the street from our school? This wasn't even our high school. This was our middle school, Um, and it was just like a you know seemed like a regular residential block, and we were all just like, wow, that's crazy. And and then like nobody else really cared. But then you kept hearing about all those people who lived in that neighborhood talking about like, Oh, don't go to T town. Don't go like T street. Like it was an area um, where uh, I guess that's where all the minorities live. It was a like Lincoln was a super, super uh, segregated city, like, like redlining out the wazoo where it was just like all of the black people, the Asian people, the Latino people, they all are in this like, block radius it's crazy yeah yeah and it so kind of what to like what you're bringing up is I, early on in my life i saw this cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. because i was in two three different worlds like i was always navigating different worlds and one of them was suburb schools living in the city yeah and another one is being not being black in washington dc Right, because that is a the city at the time. I'd say was probably seventy five percent African American. Yeah, and then the other part is all like almost ex- the white people that live in D.C. are exclusively the lawyers and lobbyists and politicians. Yeah, so the white population is primarily transient. They show up every every four years or every eight years, and they are the hired gun like sort of they are the swamp (laughs) right and then there's there was a burgeoning uh population right when i showed up there in the early 80s there was a huge salvadorian refugee population coming up to escape escaping from the civil war right in el salvador so uh i spoke spanish before i spoke english yeah i speak spanish at like a second grade level right but I learned that was my first language. And then I had a caregiver who lived with us at the house from El Salvador. So that was a third kind of thing was in this like black and white dichotomy of the city. There was also this invisible Latino population. And 
that was where my, my primary cultural milieu was like in this Salvadorian population in Columbia Road and uh, just being with my caregiver. Right. And learning Spanish and hanging out with all these Salvadorians and then asking, like, why are you all here? <laughs> and the reason was the dirty war in El Salvador uh, that jumped off with the assassination of Archbishop Romero and all funded by uh, Ronald, Ronald Reagan. So like this anti-communist, um, you know, proxy war that was being fought in El Salvador sent all of these people to the U.S. And when I, I guess my interest has always been in genealogy and like where where do people come from? Like, yeah, not so much like, well, I'm half, you know, Dutch and half Scottish or whatever, but sort of like what was what was your uh, autobiography? What led you right here? And it's like to find out that my caregiver and all of her fan, like their, her community was here because they were escaping uh, right wing death squads. Yeah. What led what led are are you first generation? Um, what well, led your parents here? So my uh, well, my dad's a you know, he's a Mexican American. He was born like in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, his parents were migrant workers from Mexico. And he spent his first few years in Mexico after being born here. So okay. there's like this uh, where I like self-identify as a Chicano. Right. So this, this term is kind of, I'd say it is like um, people of Mexican descent in the U.S. that are basically struggling with this idea of assimilation right. and also looking for an alternative narrative to what it means to be uh uh, in the United States as a citizen, because my story doesn't start with like Plymouth Rock or Puritans or yeah. the 13 colonies. Like, you know, the Mexican people or people of the Southwest were here and then the U.S. kind of consumed yeah. that territory. I mean, this is talk to death, I know, but like, it's one of my <laughs> favorite, one of my favorite right wing talking points is, you know, people in california new mexico texas being concerned about mexicans coming and taking their jobs and go back you know where he came from and speak english and all this shit is like that was <laughs> that was that like they that was theirs first that was that we took it like it was yeah. it was not that's not ours it's yeah. crazy like no I mean, they were already there and borders are absurd and and we, so yeah, yeah my mother is an immigration lawyer and she was uh she worked in civil rights and um, before that, and one of the things that she was doing was help de uh, uh, desegregate um, public schools in Texas. So, right. you know, Texas had de facto segregation uh, where there were like all of the Mexican kids would be put in shop class and like special ed. And then there'd be like the talented and gifted like children of the um, of the farm owners, you know, right. like the the people that own the land. They had their own like little AP class. So uh, her, she helped, she worked on that. And then my father was an activist. Mm. And so, well, so you, had, they, you had like a very like progressive parents already. Like, and it's, it's, it's in your DNA. It's in your, it was there. Your, I mean, by yeah. the time I was born, they were like, I think DC uh, dulls, dulls the blades. Sure. I mean, you know? how can it, yeah. Having, and having a family also does that. It's hard to be on the front lines of things when you have, when you have uh, kids. Right. I mean, you know, you can't go out and get like fucking pepper sprayed and handcuffed if you got like a kid to take care of. It's just facts. Yeah. So, um, but that just being 
so they were there were always really interesting people in in the house mm-hmm. you know there were always um uh people with big ideas stopping by a lot of good conversations around the dinner table and uh and they made sure that we had experiences and you know i remember driving around dc with my dad and he would always he'd always say yeah it's it's like a colony like washington dc is a colony yeah so i'm like learning about what colonies are in in middle school and then i'm wow like applying that to oh yeah we don't get a vote oh yeah our taxes are much higher oh there's no industry here oh there's no like (laughs) what is this like it's a weird city i've only been there once um and it, it it was it's it's just it's like this weird kind of floating city on like nothing like it's just like what but there's no like you don't see factories you don't see anything like being made here like it's just like all of a sudden all these houses and grocery stores start and you're just like okay i guess we're in town yeah like it's weird and then going to the suburbs driving out um I think there was a huge boom in uh, suburban development in the mid 80s through the Mm -hmm. 90s. And now the sprawl from Baltimore has connected to the sprawl from D.C. Yeah, it's basically one town now, right? Like D.C. Baltimore is pretty much one metro. And seeing that happen as well, I think living in a walkable part, a walkable community and then driving out and visiting people who lived in sort of like these dead end cul-de-sac nightmare uh, towns made me also critical of just like urban planning. Yeah. So uh, everything in my head was like, I I hadn't formulated it yet, but DC was the perfect Petri dish for what's wrong with criminal justice. What's, what's going on with redlining? Why, why are the exurbs booming? Right. Uh, I'm just thinking about all these things. What does it mean to be, uh, what's going on with immigrant communities and how are they assimilating or dealing or integrating into society? And what's wrong with our political system? Because I'm at the center of it and I'm seeing the turnover. And I'm also the leaders of our country. I'm going to school with their kids and right. they're dum-dums. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I mean, that- it's it's hard to... It's hard to see, you know, the, the president as some sort of, I don't know, noble kind of larger than life person if you you know if you or or senators or any of these people it's like some sort of high echelon person if you like go to school with their kids and their kids are all just like dumb fuck-ups of drug problems yeah like they just they just get a free pass on everything albans you know or if their kid gets in a dui and goes to sidwell or if their kid you know uh is like a complete total jock and goes to you know bullis or one of the other I'm just like rattling off the names of the private schools, but there's like a right. private school archipelago. And if, if you go, go, went to a private school in DC and, and that whatever year you went, you know, the kids from the other schools, right? Cause you, cause you ran cross country against them or were annoyed by their lacrosse team. Were you raised with any kind of uh, religion, spirituality? Yeah. At a Catholic church across the street from my house. So uh, we were, I went to Catholic school for most of my life and, uh, I don't have any, uh, I don't care about it right, at all. You're, you're done with it. Uh, and it's, it, I mean, the more you study things, uh, it's impossible to justify like the institution of the church in sure. any way, shape yeah. or form. Uh, however, I do have to say that, you know, my, my come to Jesus moments were based on, uh, liberation theology. Yeah. rather than explain um, what that is a reading of Marx 
specifically? Well, liberation theology really uh, came about in the th in the third world, and most of the where I am focused on it is thinking about Latin America. Mm -hmm. So, like, I was raised Catholic, and my I think my mistake to a degree was like actually believing uh, the, like the the Robin Hood side of the Jesus myth right. or the uh, the give to the poor side, the, the, that part of Jesus that is um, seen as kind of with the oppressed. Right. And liberation theology in the in the 70s and 60s was a version of Christianity that priests and nuns living in the third world were adopting and embracing this idea that uh, Jesus would not be on the side of the colonizers and would in fact be uh, someone who you, you can't you can't circle the square and uh, give mass to the plantation owners. Yeah, you have to go among the people. So this became very popular in uh, the '70s, and I kind of think of it as like Friar Tuck. Yeah, if like. Robin Hood has his merry band of uh, bandits, like leftist movements and guerrilla groups would have like liberation theology priests right. in their midst. And I'd say that after uh, Pope John Paul II um, entered into the church, he uh, was a Pol he's Polish and the Polish were uh, very anti-communist because they were under the, they were like a Soviet satellite. So by him becoming a uh, Pope, he was ultra right wing and hated all things communist. So at that moment, he um, basically shut down that um, tendency in the church and a bunch of um, Latin American priests and nuns ended up disappeared. Yeah. You know, um, who I don't know who did it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but. I think I was raised with the echoes of liberation theology. Is that like know? a like a Jesuit thing? Is that is that who those folks are? I don't know much about because like, but there there is kind of like a more I don't know progressive humanitarian wing of the Catholic Church that you know is isn't maybe I mean I don't know there, it, that's not the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Catholic Church. I think of like the boy thing, which is yeah. You know, well, the Catholic Church is kind of like, um, you know, a bunch of different. There, it's one gang, but mm -hmm. then then there's a then there's a bunch of little uh, little little gangs inside that one gang. You know, like the Crips will have yeah. their different streets will have different uh, like subsects, and the liberation theology I I don't think of as specifically uh, under one um, under one of these branches. Like I don't know if it was Jesuit or not. But if anybody has watched that movie, The Two Popes, that was on Netflix, that new they talk the new pope feels really guilty because he like he was from Latin America, but and he didn't protect his his friends who right. ended up getting thrown out of helicopters. Right. So all of his friends that were priests that got killed and thrown out of helicopters and stuff, those were the those would have been liberation theologists. Right. And that was before I read, you know, like Marx, the Communist Manifesto. I was just thinking about, well, you know, whose who side would Jesus be on today? Yeah. Would he be like on the side of the cops? Or would he be, you know, or would he be on the side of the slave master or the overseer? Or would he be on the side of, you know, the poor people? 
I mean, that's what that's how I've always understood Jesus <laughs> to be. Like that he was, you know, he he was a champion of the poor and wasn't really into, you know, was into helping the most poor, vulnerable people. And yeah, all of that stuff. So I don't know. I mean, and, uh, what do the, I know? I'm I, a heathen. I guess the reason that it it's irrelevant. Okay, well then the other the other thing about the the positive thing about the church before we the one percent of the things that are positive were my other experience was that I was educated by Benedictine monks. Mm -hmm. So the Benedictines were um, the Jesuits are whenever their whole thing was that you uh, walk among the people and they engaged in politics. So when you watch movies where uh, there's like an evil cardinal in France, like running yeah. things, or there's an evil bishop consigliere, that's like a Jesuit. Okay, yeah. so yeah. they're yeah. like their their whole thing was like we've got they're real politic boys, right? And the Benedictines were um, meditative monks, so their their whole thing was, uh, hey, uh, whatever happens in the world happens. I'm just gonna read these books, dog. I got a garden, and uh, I'm all about learning stuff. So when the um, when the plague hit Europe, the Benedictine abbeys just closed their doors and were like, no more people. We have to save the libraries. Wow. So they're kind of like the hard drives of civilization. Right. And uh, so I was kind of like, you know, I think influenced and taught by both uh, early on influenced by liberation theology. And then in terms of intellectual pursuits, this sort of Benedictine uh, critical distance from what's yeah. going on in the moment. I mean... I'm a big fan of, I mean, this is, this sounds very basic thing to say. I'm a big fan of Martin Luther King. I think, unpopular opinion here. I think Martin Luther King is pretty cool. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, he was, he was a preacher. He was, you know, I forget what, I think he was evangelical or, or Baptist. No, he's a Baptist. I don't know. Baptist. Uh, yeah. He was Baptist. And, um, you know, that's always been sort of my counter argument to, the idea that religion is always destructive and always a tool for 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 evil and for a means of controlling people and for a tool of patriarchy and all of this stuff because occasionally someone will come along who really kind of seems to understand the message of enlightenment and equity that's in the scripture and they'll be like, okay, I'm going to live like that guy and I'm going to be on the side of the downtrodden and I'm going to lift up people because everybody, you know, because uh, <clears throat> all lives matter, right? So, <laughs> you know, yeah. so like when I, like I've read a lot of his stuff and is you know, he's deeply religious and he's also one of the, you know, just like coolest, most progressive, just badass, real like democratic socialists of our time. So. Yeah, so he he's an example of how maybe the logical progression of once you kind of do the work on yourself could be uh, socialism. Yeah. Like you can't, um, I mean, that is where my moral compass, I think, is, is hardwired by these first imprints mm -hmm. by my by the Christian upbringing I had, no matter how much I would. Uh, like to say that I'm not yeah. um, that's easy to say uh, sort of intellectually but um, 
but I've always wrestled with, well, where, where do your ethics come from if there's nothing? Yeah. By the way, there is nothing. Yeah. So. I mean, that's the other, like, so I was raised Unitarian Universalist. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, a pretty, like, I don't know, hippy dippy, uh, kind of, uh, eh, it's not really woo. It was, it was fairly like, it's, I wouldn't call it new age. I wouldn't call it too like woo woo, but we, you know, the way we studied like our Sunday school, so to speak, uh, we had some other term for it, but it was essentially Sunday school growing up. We learned about all of the world religions and we just sort of did, you know, one semester, one segment on like each of it, like Judaism, Islam, Christianity, and Buddhism and all of that and just sort of like learn the basics and then just were taught to kind of like see the common thread in all of those religions um, and and sort of it was you know it was very I don't know humanist and one of the main tenets um, of Unitarian Universalism is uh, the inherent worth and dignity of all human beings and that's like a very importance that that like really stuck with me i haven't been back to church and i don't know how long i go whenever i visit my folks you know uh in my hometown i'll just like go so they can like go show me off to all their church friends or whatever you know like do the nice thing uh but i don't care to really ever go back you know i went to i went to there is a unitarian church well there's a couple in brooklyn but i went to like the the i think it's the first in like kind of downtown Brooklyn area, like sort of over by like uh, Camden, not Camden, uh, what's it called? The Plaza, right by the Brooklyn Bridge. I keep wanting to call it Camden Plaza, but that's not what it is. I know what you're talking about. So over there. Um, And it was cool, but I was also just like, yeah, but there's other things I can be doing with my Sunday morning, honestly. Like that was was about it. Like I was just like, eh, I don't care. But, and I talked about this with... um, do you know Anders Lee? Yeah. Yeah. So I had him on the show and I guess he was raised Unitarian as well. And he was talking like we were talking about how before we learned really about, you know, like you're saying, um, you know, like sort of political, economic, labor oriented leftyism. We came at it from the more just humanitarian side through through Unitarian Universalism. Like it's it just that that was hardwired that was ingrained in us so yeah know. it's almost like a life hack before you learn about uh, uh materialism yeah and uh, and you have a sense of the science of history it's you can kind of get this ahistorical uh, almost like just moral education then yeah it's just it's always it's just way. it it matters because it fucking matters like because like human lives matter and people matter even if they don't have any money and they're living in a fucking mud hut like they're still human beings. I don't know what the, I don't know what the fucking problem is. I don't yeah. know. It's so fucking hard to understand. Well, the takeaway I got from what you said is like, how do we uh, turn, um, focus more on the the uh, dignity of the individual person over commodifying every aspect of someone's life? Yeah. The, you well, know, and that's what like came around. Like diametrically opposed. Yeah. It just it, I couldn't, you know, because I also grew up. obviously as you did under capitalism and I grew up really loving it. Honestly, had a bunch of Ninja Turtles had, you know, uh, had a Sega Genesis 
would go to Pizza Hut, you know, and like watch cable TV. And I was like, this is fucking great, you know, and like was very <laughs> attached to all of the, you know, comforts of like that sort of suburban, you know, Kemlon kind of lifestyle. Um, but I could never, I could never square the circle. I could never make it make sense where it's just like, well, but this system is making things bad for a lot of other people. And aren't we supposed to believe that all those other people who we're fucking with matter? Like, I, I don't, I can't do it. <laughs> I yeah. Can't do when, it. You, when you see all of your toy, all the GI Joes, which are uh, propaganda for, uh, U.S. exceptionalism. I did not have G.I. Joe's. Um, my, oh, I did. I yeah. loved Army Men. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I, I also, like, I wasn't super into them, to be honest, but I think we did yeah. have some sort of rule. Like, my parents were, like, fine with Transformers, with Ninja Turtles, and, a, you know, I had, like, some, like, Jurassic Park shit, um, some Star Wars shit. But like, like anything like too military ish, where it was like actual like guns and like combat knives and shit. My mom was just like, I don't want you playing with that stuff. I don't like that shit. So that's wild. Yeah, yeah I think my mom, my mom was the same. Well, the first point I had to make was that G.I. Joe's, they all uh, on the butt. It's it stamps that made in uh, Taiwan or yep. made in China. Yep. So when you think about that, it's like, you know, what labor went in to make these little toys for us? How, how what was yeah. the human cost? Um, but then the other, <laughs> the other thing is my mom also hated, uh, hated war things, but yeah. you know, they worked, my parents worked all the time. So they left me to my own devices. And, and I think that's important for kids to have a space to dream and a liminal space where like no one's really watching them. Mm -hmm. Um, so like my mom, when we got a VHS player, uh, she was like, you can't rent invasion USA, like a Chuck Norris movie. You can't rent that. Uh, because it's about war but uh yeah nightmare on elm street part two no problem <laughs> so, <laughs> so i was watching like at six years old watching uh horror movies that were way over my head right uh, but then you so, had this you had this kind of taboo like this tantalizing taboo almost of like all these like there's like right wing eighties action movie, you know, you, you, like red dawn, like was like out there and you're like, that's the, that's the <laughs> secret. I want that. Like that's the yeah. temptation. I want uh Delta force. I want, I, I, I want commando. You know? Yeah. I watch those now and I root for the Russians. I mean, <laughs> which movie is it that like at the end it says like this movie is dedicated to the brave Muhadin fighters and Iran. Uh, that is a Rambo three. Yeah, Thank you so fucking funny. Rambo helps Osama bin Laden uh, <laughs> <laughs> against the Soviet helicopters. Yeah, well, how'd that work out? Um, well, yeah, no, and uh, my dad. I was also raised to be very anti-war because. My dad, we watched Rambo First Blood together, the, the first Rambo film. Which is an anti-war movie. It's just yeah, the thing that people yeah. fucking miss about that movie. He's like yeah. a fucked up dude with PTSD and like he's all insane. Like there's an alternate ending that they actually filmed where he kills himself at the end. Wow. But they and like I tested that and, and they were like, I guess the test audiences didn't like that. It was like too grim, too fucked up. But like sure. that's how that movie should have ended with him. Just like he just blows his own brains out at the end of the movie. Yeah, man. I'm so happy that uh, that uh, my dad let me watch that 
we watched it together and it bummed me out even without Sylvester Stallone blowing his brains out. Cause I was right. like, why is he going to jail? What, you know, cause at the end of it, he gets taken off by the cops. Yeah. So it still, it still ends on a downbeat and people don't remember that. But while I'm watching it, uh, the first scene is him going to go visit his friends and he finds out from their relatives that his friends all died from Agent Orange. So right. my dad's like telling me about how all of his friends, not all, but like his friends who went to Vietnam died. And so, so right there immediately we're making this connection about like, well, who goes to war, who fights, what was the point, yeah. you know, and you, it, these people come back from war and like, it was for nothing. And the country isn't going to, you're not going to be seen as a hero when you come back, you're going to be arrested. No. And he's like, all the vets that we know are on the streets and they're on drugs. Yeah. So don't ever fight for the country. It's a sucker's game right then he took me to the vietnam memorial dc once again it was right there and uh the memorial like the first couple years it was so popular people were going there all the time and my dad took me to the uh to the wall and he points to all the names and like every third name is a uh spanish uh surname so he's like look at all these names see who dies for this country like again it we're all just cannon fodder so don't go to war right wow so teachable moments teachable that's a that's a fucking profound moment dude amazing um so you were and and i i i mean this in the best way and i speak as you know kind of uh having this history myself you were you were a bit of a, a soft boy you were a bit of like a, a a wiener boy growing up you were you were allergic to a lot of stuff you were kind yeah. of uh you know, anemic and and and, and <laughs> sickly little kid, and I think that also like has an impression because I grew up that way too. I was like a total like fucking Bobby Hill soft boy. I'd cry when my football team lost. Have all these emotions which I wasn't supposed to have as a boy watching the game. You know, yeah. And, like I just it, I couldn't I couldn't make any sense of it. Yeah. Well. Uh, totally. I think I was um, never good at sports. Uh And I learned, I just compensated for a lot of these things. I think I was was definitely bullied in school as a little kid. How badly? Like how how much? I'd say that I got pretty good at telling jokes and and pleasing people to never be on the wrong side of the bully. Right. After like maybe second grade. Yeah. So I mean, that's the, like, and like growing up to be a comedian... And then it comes back around because there are so many bullies in comedy who everybody feels like they need to appease. And then what do you do? I mean, at some point you have to stop. Uh, the, so the, the what you're talking about, I think, is like the cycle of violence. Yeah. And I watch these. So I, I work with kids and like I, te- I teach this heroes workshop. And we also, uh, there's the origin story of villains when you when we teach the Heroes Workshop, what's a villain? And when you watch these movies, uh, like Marvel movies, or uh, often the villain is uh, was like a bully, uh, like a little sickly kid yeah. who then got awesome powers, but then replicates the uh, systems of oppression yeah. upon others. And so at some point, you just have to look in the mirror and realize that you're not a victim anymore or that you have no reason to be aggrieved. And yeah. I think that that is when we look at like mean spirited comedy, bullies, uh, Republican party, um, uh, pundits. Yeah. All of this, 
to be aggrieved is not a good look. No, not usually. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what I'm getting at. Is like, how did I got over this? Because at some point, you know, I'd, I'd um, constructed a life where I'd had enough wins for myself. Yeah. Enough, enough victories that uh, where I learned to validate myself that um, I know I try not to, uh, I've tried to release um, any grievances mm -hmm. around being sickly or. Yeah. I mean, cause that had that, that's the other side of it that we've seen sort of rear its head in the last five, 10 years uh, is our generation had this whole swath of, you know, just us little like nerdy pale kids who like were, you know, not good at sports. And there's, there's, there is a swath of those kids every generation, but what happened was, you know, half of us became artists and activists and comedians and stuff. And then half of us became just like incels, you know? And it, it like that was the weirdest phenomenon to me um, because I could I shared so much community space with a lot of those types of people in like nerd culture and anime and video games and stuff like that. Um, and I shared a lot of like common history with them, which is like not being good with girls in high school and stuff like that. And then I was just like, but what happened? Like, wh why? Like you're like something there's, there's almost that like AA, like there, but for the grace of God, go I thing. When I look at those people sometimes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree entirely. I don't have an answer. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is that, um, it is creating your own narrative. So this is almost like a positive mental attitude thing or like a self-help thing where like, creating your own personal narrative is really important and creating a narrative where you have things that you have accomplished that you value intrinsically or internally mm -hmm. rather than seeking validation from the outside world. So, uh, what makes me, I'm not booked on every show. Yeah. Um, and I can sit and mull over, uh, how my career is going if I compare myself to others, right? I'm not, I'm not making that Sebastian Maniscalco money. Right. But then I can look back and I say, well, I, I, I actually, I produce, I self-produced my own album and yeah. um, I put out an hour of material that I was happy with. And it was a testament to 10 years of performing in the city. So um, my validation comes from something I generated on my own. And so looking back, it's like, I'd say for anybody who mm, maybe has a negative self image or is struggling with any sense of aggrievement is like, look at the, make a list of the things that you've done yeah. or start working towards things, great works that build community or help you create the image of yourself that you'd like to see. We were talking, Jake and I were talking about this last week with uh, the degree of alienation in a lot of uh, particularly, I don't know, ominous or creepy groups, QAnon and school shooters and people like this. Um, and, you know, this podcast is about a lot of those things you were just mentioning 
uh, low self-esteem and this low self, uh, sense of self-worth. And, you know, that's a common thread among the depressed. And again, it's one of those things where I look at those people and I feel bad for them to a degree until they turn that into a thing that's hurting other people. And then I'm just like, well, I went through a lot of that too, and I'm not fucking doing what you're doing. So what's your excuse? At some at some point, I'm just like, I my my sympathy ends, you know. Well, <laughs> well, once they start doing something destructive, then the conversation's kind of over. Yeah, you know, um, I was I'm a school teacher, and uh, well, now I'm a teaching artist. So I go into schools and I teach creative writing, and theater, and history, and art history. But the, when I was a classroom teacher, you know, we have rules and expectations in the room. And the minute that someone does something destructive, you know, uh, that they're out. Right. It doesn't matter what their sob story is. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also sort of disrespecting other people in the room. That's a big deal too, you know, infringing on someone else's autonomy or their consent. So you, we're looking at, um, in society, what are the things that you can do up until it's all gray until you hit the, the that line that demarcates the gray from like mm-hmm. you, you're, you've broken the norm, you're out, you're out. So up until that moment, I don't know. I mean, I, I think in, I think uh, part of the practice of the art that we're putting out is to be able to give people a roadmap for new possibilities. So uh, even putting this podcast out, it's like if somebody's listening to this and afterwards they sit down and they think of a biography for themselves or a journey that they're on and they start thinking about a couple of positive things that they've done, you know, that's, that's, that's it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and something else I always find is like whenever uh, I'm depressed, an act of service is always um, positive. You know, uh, giving gifts is more uh, will will benefit you more than uh, receiving them. So be it a kind note to someone <laughs> reviewing a podcast. Yeah. Smash the five light five stars on this. man. Five, yeah, please, please do. Please do. If you're listening. And, yeah. If you're <laughs> listening and this is giving you any value. Your good fun, deed of the day could just easily be that. And you will yeah. help another person out. It's very easy. Doesn't yeah. have to be a difficult thing to do. Just, you know, like and subscribe. Every moment of the day when you're walking through life awake is a moment where you get to choose. Uh, the uh, Choose to do something that makes the world better. Mm. How, so, so how often are you able to do that? And how often would you say, uh, I don't know, life or your own, you know, brain, your own shit gets in the way of that? All the time. The yeah. brain gets in the way of it all the time. Uh, we're we're organic beings that are not um, moving, progressing in a linear way. There's like good days and bad days, lazy days and not lazy days. So like an example for me is I woke up with a terrible headache. I didn't want to do anything, but I went and I taught six classes until noon. And then I listened to a couple episodes of this, uh, of your podcast. On Thank the you for listening. From. And then I messaged the people, the guests who I listened to and just gave them a little, just told them what I liked about what I heard. So oh, nice. that was my, 
my good deed of the day was sort of selflessly um, sending someone, uh, just acknowledging them in the void. Yeah. Let's talk about mental health for a minute, uh, like explicitly. Uh, when you're, what is your, I don't know, your experience with that mental illness, the the, the bad side of Gabe Pacheco, what is that? Well, uh, I mean, I think it was, it's always been very easy to, uh, substances were always easy, mm. you know, just doing anything. Um, but I'd say that the reason that maybe I'm not an, an alcoholic or that I'm not something that balances things out is I always try to have a, I always try to have a thing in my life that, um, that gives that I feel like it gives purpose, like a reason to not, a reason to not go out tonight and chain smoke and drink is uh, to prep for this podcast. Right. A reason uh, that I won't go out after this is because I know I have to teach in the morning. Right. Or uh, early on in my twenties, when I started doing stand up, before that I was a public school teacher and every night, uh, I remember hearing Zilla talk about how it felt like being Sisyphus in the classroom. Yeah. Every day I was like, uh, it felt like I was just building a sandcastle that was getting washed away. And I didn't know if I had any efficacy at all when I was teaching uh, middle school science. So uh, every night there was, we'd get out at like five, Thursday, happy hour, 5 p.m. I'd be at the bar. I'd show up to work hungover on Friday, you know, and then I would just be drunk all weekend or like right. out, out of right. pocket. Right. And then go back up on Monday and started all over again. And once I started uh, a devoted time to stand up, I just made like, I made sort of like a goal for myself that was uh, I'm gonna do seven um, performances this week. And I was total amateur. So seven performances just meant I'm gonna go to seven open mics. Right. And it doesn't mean I have to go every day. It means I could do three in a row on Wednesday and then I could do two on you know Thursday and then one on Friday, but the very act of doing that, um, just like any other habit, be it like, I'm gonna do 50 pushups, mm. whatever, every, every day. The very act of having one structured thing that you're committed to doing means that the rest of your life has to start um, sort of almost like mercury that's separated, start, it beads together, or it starts creating its own structure, like a, like a crystal, right. because the rest of your life now has to become aligned with that goal. And that, I didn't answer your question at all about mental health. Oh, uh, no, you kind of did. You're, you're, you're getting there. But, but it is, it, it, this, I think, <coughs> um, is more of a self-help approach rather than a uh, therapeutic approach. Mm. Because I'm not excavating my past and looking at my um, triggers when I do this. I'm thinking about an action that I can take. Was that um, part of it, like going to therapy and, and doing all of that stuff? Was that part of being able to have the wherewithal to even like get yourself to seven? Because that's a lot. That's hard to do. And that's not a thing that, you know, anybody's making you do. So, you right. know, if yeah. <laughs> like, how did you keep with that? And were there roadblocks? How did you work through them? Oh, yeah. So I, I didn't keep uh, I didn't keep up with it. Mm, I haven't kept up with it consistently. What I find is that I look for different uh, sort of 
exercises to help me um, build different positive habits. So that was something I did early on in standup was that seven sets a week uh, got me from drinking because I was out and I knew that I had to get up the next day and I knew that I had and I had a purpose. So I felt good at the end of doing at the, accomplishing this, release those endorphins. Right. Then uh, I'd say more recently, maybe the like two in the last three years, I started uh, the Artist Way uh, workbook. And the Artist Way workbook is like basically you do morning pages every day. Mm-hmm. And I uh, there was a collective of maybe 10 comedians and artists and writers in New York that I would meet with once a week. And we went through the whole workbook. How'd you meet up with them? How did this, how did this? Uh... Facebook. Wow. Facebook, man. So yeah. We Thanks just, Zuckerberg. Uh, yeah. My friend just posted on Facebook who wants to do this book together. And it's one of those books that people um, read the first chapter of and then put down mm-hmm. because you need a group. That's me with most books. Yeah. But that positive, so then for, I'd say for like two years, I was just, I would wake up every day and I would write uh, three pages, like automatically, sort of um, stream of consciousness. Yeah. And looking back at that is therapeutic because you get to see the patterns of like where your mind is racing, where you're going. Right. And that while I was working on that um, artist way, uh, exercise, that's when I put out my album. Mm-hmm. So it was through writing those pages that the next project for me sort of emerged. And Halal Cartels feels like another sort of baby that came out of um, these meditative exercises. Mm-hmm. Where the first thing I thought of was like, what's the vision? What, what do I, how do, how do I envision the ending of this? Or like, it, if not the ending, the um, the point of view. And everything will flow from having a point of view with, with some integrity to it, a structure. Hmm. So when you teach kids, yeah. um, what is your general outlook? Are the kids all right? What's the, you know, what's the, um, what's your prognosis for the future? How doomed are we? Oh, well, we're not doomed because of the kids. They're mm, fine. Right. Uh, the kids are totally fine. It is, uh, in fact, I'm hopeful for a lot of them. I work with, there's a museum I work with and I do Zoom classes with these kids and they show up week after week of their own volition voluntarily on Zoom. And uh, I don't ever tell them I'm a commie, but uh, they're, they're like turning into hardcore Maoists just by <laughs> like looking at how history has unfolded up to this point. Yeah. And uh, so they're okay. Then children in general are, um, you know, their brains are operating at a much faster processing speed than ours. So I'm always astounded by the leaps and connections that they're able to make. Yeah. Uh, Am I hopeful for them based on our education system? Nah, man. No. Yeah. It's it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah. The systems are, are pretty broken and, um, I'm more concerned with just like climate change. Yeah. Like what, what type of a habitable world are they going to have? Yeah. I started recently working with, uh, well, this was like pre pandemic and then it kind of, it, it shifted as the pandemic progressed more into like material needs, mutual aid kind of thing. But there was, uh, this, uh, 
there's this thing in Red Hook called the Red Hook Art Project. Um, and what we were doing, you know, before was we were doing uh, art classes, uh, you know, of, of any kind, you know, like different different types of media, uh, 2D editing, video stuff, um, even like more like, I don't know, practical crafty things like DIY clothing and, you know, things like that. Um, but these were just like kids from the community. Most of them were living in the projects. And it was the first time I'd really talked to like a group of teenagers in some time. And I almost started crying during one of the classes, just listening to them talking because they were so keenly aware of how bad things are and just like how, I don't know, just how, how like really lucid and sentient they were of just like, yeah, the climate and, and Trump's a fascist and there's all this like nuclear shit. And we were just like, like, they're like very aware of what's going on. And we're just like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I guess we're fucked. And they just, well, but they were just yeah. like kind of matter of fact about it. And they were just like kept drawing and they were like, fine. They were just like, and they like just changed the subject, started talking about like Dragon Ball, like, you know? Yeah. It's, it's I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to get too black pilled on it because, <laughs> but I will say, so a couple beautiful things that I've noticed uh, among the middle schoolers that I teach. It, one is that they're, um, their gender fluidity is um, is like light years ahead of where yeah. I was when I was uh, up in middle or high school. Or um, they're just much more accepting of their peers being uh, a little bit divergent from the yeah. binary. Yeah, and they've got a better handle on the vocabulary and just a sense of gender being a construct. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even we didn't have any of that shit. I mean, we had yeah. the only person who I really identified with as a teenager uh, who had, you know, just grown up as a soft boy and, and kind of like a real, I don't know, lefty liberal kid in a very red state was Kurt Cobain, you know, and was just like, well, he wore makeup and he painted his fingernails and stuff. And he was, you know, not afraid to like present as feminine or anything like that and he was a straight guy so like i like i could make sense of it in that but like terms like non-binary gender fluidity any of that stuff was just like that didn't even fucking exist that like the language wasn't there yeah so that's something hopeful to think about in terms yeah. of the speed with which um gender has become a um a conversation piece in a positive way and one that is much more accepted by kids today. And another thing is the sort of the the way that kids are the kids are able to process information around like I think tick, I'm going to talk about TikTok and not um, disparage it. Like I think TikTok is it's above my pay grade in a lot of respects. I didn't adopt it early enough, yeah. but I think TikTok is fantastic because you can put out a full like college discourse in 60 seconds yeah. with images and uh visuals though i i've tried i have an account and like i don't know what to do with it like i i i 
agree. Like like you, I think it's it's beyond my pay grade. I I don't know how to speak that language. And when I see these like you know these kids, these young fucking whippersnappers on TikTok, it's these like 14, 15, 16 year old kids, and they are expressing these really complex ideas just visually and really like without even like really saying anything they're just yeah just they'll just point at a word and they'll match it to a song or they'll like do some sort of visual trick and that's it but like a their filmmaking skills their editing skills their visual storytelling skills are just like fucking crazy just speaking as somebody who like learned how to shoot movies on like a a camcorder like a dv camcorder and edit in you know, uh, iMovie in high school and now high schoolers just like, they have such mastery of visual storytelling. It's fucking insane, you know, but, but just like the complexity of ideas they can put out is just, it's really cool. Yeah. So thinking about like the Arab spring and how people thought it was, uh, I I don't know how much of it was actually like a psyop or like manufactured by tech companies, but you know, Twitter was used in the Arab spring to sort of like spark these revolutions. And I think the next one is going to be sparked by a couple of viral TikTok heads. Let's hope so. And I mean, but, you know, I also hope that there isn't some sort of like dark back end to this, which there probably will be because, you know, Twitter also um, helped Trump become president. So, you know, <laughs> right. it's, I mean, there's the uh, the other side of it. That's just like there's some there's got to be some evil shit. Yeah. The tech has no morality. No, it's neutral. It's completely neutral. It can be charged positively or negatively. I don't know. It's very. Sure. I thought this to meme tell. online. It was very. Uh, this meme today I saw online. That I really liked, and it was. Um, it was a Star Wars meme, and it had Obi Wan Kenobi handing uh, Luke Skywalker a lightsaber, and he was like, "This was your father's lightsaber." And then under it goes, <laughs> "You mean the one he used to kill thirty children?" <laughs> canceled. <Right? Darth laughs> Anakin Skywalker is canceled. He's problematic. Yeah. So, you know, the prop that's yeah. Yeah. Technology can go either way. Yeah, it's true. I've never even thought about it in those terms. Wow. Okay. uh, So do you struggle with imposter syndrome? Is Uh, that a thing for you? I think that, yeah, it's very easy to feel that way. And the only the the best uh, recourse for that is again to um, remember your own identity, mm-hmm. you know, remember your own narrative, and uh, and and the easiest way to get over it is to actually do a thing that day that you can be that you feel proud of. Mm-hmm. So imposter syndrome for me comes from feeling either uh, verbally out of shape, I haven't been writing jokes, oh, I haven't been getting up, mm-hmm. or you know I'm a bad teacher because I didn't lesson plan so what are the ways to get around that the way to for me is to just take a step towards doing the thing that you said you were going to do how did you process all of that during the pandemic when you weren't able to perform i I know this was i mean it was hard on a lot of people for a lot of reasons it was not great for anyone but you know i know like comedians and performers and people like that like who just like oh i can't do anything right now um i felt blessed Yeah, I felt I felt blessed because I had put out uh, the album right before the pandemic. That's right. You got in just under the wire. Yeah, I had this feeling of, well, if I die today uh, from coronavirus, I will have my legacy will already be out there because I did the thing. 
So I would, I would have been more upset if I had put off putting out the album. Right. If I was a month from recording it, then that would have been devastating psychologically because it would have meant that I had dragged my feet and missed that moment of potential that I had. Right. You already made your mark in some way, so it doesn't, it, it matters less. What, uh... Then, yeah. Then the second thing is shifting my identity away from stand up comedy. Stand up comedy is a medium, it is not an identity. It is, uh, it is one way that artists express themselves. So mm. I sat on my rug, I lied down on my rug and I microdosed and just like look, tried to, just looking at poetry and stuff and playing Spotify playlists and kind of um, taking a moment and being like, this is a moment to reflect because this is a once in a lifetime moment. This is not a moment to be reactive, uh, to be too hasty. So I just shifted my identity away from comedian and it shifted it into like artist. What, mm. what, uh, just because this conduit is closed doesn't mean that I'm going to stop creating. And in that, like I, I, I bought a drafting table and I assembled it myself and I just started drawing little sketches during the day. Yeah. I've seen and, some of your work. I really like it. It's got a, it's got a cool little, what do you draw with? It looks like just pen and maybe colored yeah. pencil. Exactly. So yeah. I just use little pen. I use like fine point black pens. Uh -huh. And part of it is uh, that you can do the art with anything. You don't need like fancy equipment. You don't need, mm. you don't even need skill. You don't need to be trained. Just do a thing. And over time, kind of like how stalactites and stalagmites form, every little drip will, will build organically build this thing that you're, yeah. that you're, you know, working towards. I mean, there's a lot of people. I mean, uh, what's his name? Judah Friedlander does um, does mm -hmm. does uh, visual art. He does little drawings, and he didn't go to fucking art school. And like, but they it, they have a style. They have like a cohesive look. He put out a whole book of it, and it it's it's nice. And they're very just like simple drawings. And it's uh, it's another way for him to just make jokes because they're just visual jokes. I mean, I had on a couple of weeks ago. I had on. Um, Madeline Horwath, who she started in stage comedy and is now doing, you know, one panel comics for uh, The New Yorker. And it's just a different mode of joke telling, you know, and uh, one of my favorites, Lisa Hannawalt, uh, I, I think has always like she's talked about how she she wanted like she initially when she was younger thought about doing stand up, but was just too terrified and like can't like get up in front of people or couldn't at that point. But if you look at her comics, especially from that time, they have a sort of stand-up esque uh unfolding. There's a there's a like one, two, three, there's an ABC to the joke that's happening. And you're like, oh, so you're just doing this through a different medium. It's interesting. Yeah. So uh it also it kind of uh originated out of necessity. I was teaching some uh, elementary school kids over Zoom um, at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, I was tutoring this um, kindergartner and they were like very low literacy levels. So I would draw images, we'd create characters together and I would draw quickly draw to sort of um, incentivize them to give me more ideas. Or, right. and, and that uh, gave me a much faster caricature drawing style so mm -hmm. I just started developing that style 
through repetition over days in a low stakes arena because kids are not um, art critics. Right. So they're just looking, they're just excited to see any of their ideas being um, drawn out. And then I would do that and my hand styles got better. And then um, Samir and I would do, Samir Nassim, we had Funhouse Comedy on Zoom. And then I started getting a little antsy listening to performers and being seated the whole time because I'd, after a full day on the laptop to then sit and listen to somebody on Zoom was uh, onerous, was too much. Right. So I started drawing um, people's sets while they were performing. I would just draw like a couple ideas I had based on what they said. And then I would not roast them, but kind of like acknowledge, hey, this is what you were talking about. That This is what it made me think about. And then that became kind of its own uh, part of the show. And I, I always loved uh, caricature artists on the mm-hmm. boardwalk. Mm-hmm. So when I was little and I'd walk by them, I thought, this is, a, this is the best artist. Look at this masterpiece he made. Yeah, I mean, but they he, do it so fast and they just like do it right on the moment. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, what's that show called? It, there's a stand-up show. I think they do it at Union Hall where somebody draws along with what the comedian is saying. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've never been booked to do it, so yeah, I'm not going to shout out. <laughs> sure. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, press for you guys. Yeah, I mean, good good luck to them. But I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the 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 show that shall remain nameless. I mean, I think it's a it's a cool um, marriage of those two different styles or those two different uh, art forms. Um, did you ever get into Brad Neely? Um, he did, he did, uh, uh, China, Illinois, uh, it eventually went to adult swim, but honestly, I think when it went to adult swim, it's okay. But his original stuff that he was making circa 2009 ish around there. Um, and it was just these flash videos and they're basically animatics. They weren't even like fully animated and it was just these crude drawings and it was him doing all the voices and it was sometimes these uh, long form rants that one character was doing. It was sometimes a dialogue scene, um, but it was just a animatic that would play over it and add another visual element to it. Uh, and it was just incredible. It's so good. Well, what a uh, primary, um, uh, I think a, a early imprint in my life was, like I said, my parents were pretty lax about the videos that I would watch. And my dad took me to the video store and I rented uh, Wizards, uh, which is a Ralph uh, ba- Ralph Bakshi. Yeah, Ralph Bakshi film. And, you know, I was probably like six or seven years old and I'm watching Wizards and Wizards is super for adults. It yeah, is, no, Ralph like, Bakshi gets pretty uh, dicey. <laughs> he gets a little, yeah. But the film, uh, the premise is that there was a, an apocalyptic event, a nuclear holocaust. Right. And this is like the early 80s for me. So I'm a Cold War baby. Right. And the, uh, so, yeah, there's a nuclear apocalypse. And then out of the ashes of that millennia later come the fairies and the goblins. So we live in this world of the fairies and goblins. And then one of the, the evil uh, sorcerer who's in charge of the forces of uh, darkness he excavates these old Third Reich uh, tapes, videos, or um, mm. movie reels. And so he indoctrinates his, the, these like orcs and goblins with Third Reich 
imagery. Nazi works. So I'm watching this as a little kid and it's like, okay, um, cartoons can have real messages beyond like princes and princesses who love and bullshit like that. They can be about like the end of the world and about. Are you an Adventure Time fan? Uh, I'm not, but not because I don't like it, just because I'm not. um, You never really watched it. Yeah. It's it has kind of the same basic setup as that, and they only get around to it a little bit later. Like it starts off as just this is this semi it's like sort of Zelda ish. There's like castles and princesses and magic and swords and stuff. But you're not really sure because there's also like he'll like pull out like a Walkman or like he'll have like a, a video game and stuff. So you're like, what's happening here? And, you know, but like you can accept it on one level is just like, oh, it's just completely anachronistic and they can do whatever they want. It's a cartoon. Who gives a shit? He can have a car in one episode and he's riding a horse in the next episode. Who cares? But eventually the history they get around to is this is all post-apocalyptic there's a there's like a nuclear (laughs) war and then magic comes back to the world after that and they call it the great mushroom war the mushroom clouds and they they make references to it and there's like certain characters that remember it because they're that old but wow like what you eventually piece together is this is like a thousand years after the end of the world and it but it's like a silly super colorful psychedelic kids cartoon it's it's amazing it's one of my favorite pieces of art yeah well, the end's going to be as beautiful as the beginning. Let's hope. Gabe <laughs> Pacheco, thank you so much for being on the show. I know you got to get out of here in a minute, um, but like, give us your give us your plugs. Where can we find you? Hey, I'd love it if everybody subscribes to Halal Cartels. Give it a listen. And that is the podcast. If you are in Brooklyn and you want to see a live show every Wednesday at 930, come to Pete's Candy Store, Funhouse Comedy or every second and fourth Saturday, you can come to uh, The Nest in Prospect Leopard's Garden for Big Break. But Halal Cartels is where it's at. And my Instagram is Gabe, G-A-B-E-P-A-C-1. All right. Thank you so much, man. Hell yeah, this was great. Brad, thank you. Yeah. All right. Ah, thank you, Gabe Pacheco. Check out him and his work. Go to that show of his if you live in the New York area. Um, He's a funny guy. Listen to his show. Listen to that podcast. Uh, Once again, you can find me on social meds at Radical Pearson on both Instagram and Twitter. You can follow this show at Self Worst uh, on Instagram. And uh, you can email selfworst at gmail.com. And uh, I'm going to say the rest of it, like uh, Barack Obama. You can uh, sign up on Patreon.com. And um, uh, you can rate and review uh, five stars. I'm going to go kill some people with a drone. Anyway, um, thank you all for listening. Music is by Shea Bartell. Thank you, Shea. And uh, that's all folks. I'll see you next week. Uh, Hopefully there will not be a terrible cloud of smog looming over us. Uh, Hopefully there won't be any, I don't know, fucking kaiju rising out of the sea or whatever's next. 
No tentacles coming down from the sky. I don't know what the fuck is... God damn. We can't catch a break, can we? All right. I'm Brad Pearson. Until next time, go out and fail. It's good for you. <laughs>